Fellas, what's going on? We are back again with another episode, this time with Dennis, aka Dennis Protocol. He is really uh, your guru's favorite guru. I found Dennis a while ago, and uh, some of the stuff he was putting out was absolutely mind-boggling to me. Dennis and I talk a lot. We dig deep into things like peptides, like hormones, like pretty much everything, you know, both in the physical and the more metaphorical and esoteric realm. Dennis, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So Dennis, I know that your background is, you know, you're an NP, but when did you get into this deeper level of, you know, we'll call it biohacking? Yeah, so that will go just way back to when it all started. So around 16. And even before then, um, you know, quick backstories, grew up in a farm in a village in Ukraine, ate all organic foods, was into sports, was didn't have an ounce of body fat on me. And then we come to America when I was like six, seven. And as I grew up, the better I do in school, I would get Burger King every single week. And the better I got my grades, the more Burger King I got. So every week on Friday, I would get, you know, a Whopper. And the Whopper turned into a bigger Whopper, bigger Whopper, you know, small drink, medium drink to the King drink, dip your fries into ranch with ketchup and I would eat it. And this would add up, add up, add up. Because we didn't know that the American dream, you know, could serve you up something like this. And then before I knew it around, you know, 12, 13, 14, metabolic damage happened. And I was like 15 or 16 and I went on the internet and then bodybuilding.com at that time was a cool and had like this little thing about, you know, try this all fat diet, you'll lose like 30, 40 pounds. And I was like, no way, no way can somebody, you know, eat all fat and like, you know, garbage to what I thought was like unhealthy and it would work. And I lost like 40 pounds, like in three months without working out, without doing cardio, just with food. And that's when it like a huge light bulb hit me. I was like, okay, food is everything. Food is powerful. Like it matters what you eat. And that's kind of when it started. Then, you know, bodybuilding kind of bit me. I got into like working out and I started working out. And then I'm like, wow, you can really just transform and do everything. And that's when all the pieces started coming together. And I got more involved in bodybuilding and fitness. And that's really the beginning of the biohacking. And then that just got deeper and deeper as bodybuilding advances. You start having to maneuver differently because the results stop and you plateau, right? So then the nuance comes out. And that's when I guess more biohacking, more biohacking happened. Um, finished nutrition, uh, basically my degree in nutrition, went from molecular and cellular biology, got a degree in nutrition because I was like, ah, oh, food, food is the most important. Um, finished that and then kind of life shifted and I became a nurse and then realized that nobody really listens to you when you're a nurse. Nobody listens to you as a dietitian. Nobody listens to you as a nurse. Um, and as I was finishing, I finished nursing and then got into, uh, running testosterone clinics. So as I was running testosterone clinics, as I was into bodybuilding, while well, I was like coaching other guys, coaching myself, going through all that, I did like a little show and then I helped others prepare for their show, for their photo shoots. So basically the chemistry started becoming really interesting. Food became really interesting, realizing that there are so many different buckets and different kinds of people, better genetics, worse genetics, um, better outcomes, worse outcomes. Um, I just kept expanding. And then... Um, as I basically maxed out the testosterone clinic and I was like, well, hey, I can't make any more money. What can I do? Go become a nurse practitioner. And then as I did that, they fired me and I had to look for another job. And I started looking for another job and I started working at like a telewellness clinic, which was basically my first foot through the door of, oh, there's more than testosterone. There's more than just men. And then I just explored this new horizon where there's just all these tools and that's when the peptides came in. That's when like more hormone management, more very concise coaching, high level coaching came in. So it was like that unfurling that led to everything. So it's been now like 16, 17 years of just obsession um, in all things, you know, bodybuilding, fitness, nutrition, weight loss. And then now having all these cool tools 
to add on to it. Um, so that's kind of the story. That's crazy. I'm curious, you know, what effect do you think growing up on a farm in a rural environment had on you from a developmental standpoint? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of how would you be different? How would Dennis be different growing up in the environment you grew up in compared to, say, a modern environment in a city, you know, having the traditional standard American diet? How much of an impact do you think that has? Literally 100% because I, I wouldn't have gotten fat. I would have done more activities. I wouldn't go through that metabolic damage, which is a blessing, right? Ultimately, it was a complete and utter blessing to be broken down, to then have to figure out and fix it, and then to have the perspective of somebody coming from, you know, there's there's guys who are into fitness and they've never been fat, so they give advice. If you've never broken yourself, how can you fix other people? So I, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now, right? But... I would probably be ultimately healthier, right? I wouldn't really need to worry about testosterone because my testosterone is fine. I'd shut down. I wouldn't ever get fat. I'd be lean. I'd be eating real food all the time, right? Because you go to the market, you go to the bazaar, kind of how you do, where you get real food, real butchers all the time. There is there's no chemicals and chemistry. That, that's It's just food, right? And you walk everywhere. You literally walk everywhere. You spend way more time outside. And then we came here to the States and that's when like video games became a thing. So I started playing a lot of video games, didn't spend a lot of time outside, didn't play any sports, went to a school system, which was primarily about education and pushing you that way. And it wasn't focused on sports. Whereas over there, it would be physical, it'd be farm stuff. It would be just life stuff. You, it's just completely different lives, right? So I would be probably overall healthier and better off because of that environment, right? Yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, looking at from, do you think a lot of your physiology now is a result of your environment before coming here to the States, right? As opposed to like, if you were born in a city, like, and we're eating a million percent, a million percent. So like my mom and always, my mom and I always have this joke where like, when we got here, we didn't understand what allergies were because nobody over there has stomach problems. Nobody over there has allergies. They can eat whatever, however, whenever. Um, it didn't actually become a thing until we were here for about 15 years. And then we started kind of more or less suffering from all these ailments that don't really exist over there. So that's a big deal, right? And if you do live like everybody usually has like a city house and they have like a, a dacha or, you know, a little village home. And if you think about like, EMFs and, and routers and things like that. It, it just isn't there. They have electricity, obviously, but like you're just not surrounded by it all the time. So I think to, to your point, growing up on the farm in the village, like it's, it's the best because you're just eating real food and you're moving. Um, and there, you're not growing up with either, you know, and uh, I want to say vaccines and things like that. You're not growing up with all the extra stuff because I think in my opinion, it's really, if you want to set up your kid for the best, it's, it's those first like 10 years that's going to determine your future, right? So if, if, if I were to have a kid, I'd rather go take him to a farm, raise him there, and then bring him into the city as opposed to raise him on a city and then bring him into a farm because I think the outcomes will be completely different. Absolutely. Yeah. From a biological and a psychological standpoint, we know like all oh, the yeah. most impactful things happen from the ages of, of zero to seven. And also like perinatal as well and prenatal, like the nutrition of the mother has such a big impact. I think about that yeah. a lot. And, you know, a lot of times it, it can lead you to kind of having the what if questions it's like, what if, you know, I had better nutrition as a child, you know, what if I grew up in an environment with less toxicity, but Hey, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. At the end of the day, you have to accept the cards that you were given and just use that as a, a as a, an, an, an informed uh, foundation to then kind of move forward. 
Now, you know, we were talking a little bit before this about the mal- like we we're, were talking about bulking, but that brings me to this idea of like the malleability of our physiology, the malleability of our biology, because we're told that all this stuff is set in stone. We are the way that you, you, you are, right? If you're fat, you're fat forever. It's your genes. If you're skinny, you're skinny forever. If you're dumb, you're dumb forever. But we know that not to be the case. And I think the deeper that we dive, the more malleable we realize that pretty much everything about us is, you know, I've had these ridiculously incredible uh, character and trait changes, right? You know, growing up, you're just told you're hyperactive. You're told that you can't sit still. You're told that you can't do a lot of these things. But if you try hard enough, you are, you know, creative enough, you can figure that out. Did you have any like pretty profound or significant physiological or even psychological changes throughout this process, right? Have you always been, you know, I, I think from like a structural standpoint too, it's like, have you noticed any large significant changes that you previously thought were not possible? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that for me? Yeah. So I, I think like the big factor is to like our, 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 our body structure, right? So, you know, like I, I talk about like facial structure and how you can kind of change the structure of your face. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are like, that's impossible, right? Your growth, growth plates close when you hit 20, you know, now we're like, okay, well maybe those growth plates don't close until 30. Personally, like I've had a huge change in like my face and like skull size for all intents and purposes. Like, have you noticed anything to that extent? Do you think it's possible to change the structure of, you know, you at, at like after, you know, peak development? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like you, you, you even showcase just using you as an example. Um, you've seen your feet, right? Tell me that that's not a change. Tell me that a person eating soft food versus hard food isn't a change. Tell me that a person switching from a seasonal climate to a non-seasonal climate isn't going to cause a change, right? So I just think of everything like if you just make it really easy to an extreme, if I just row a boat for the next five years, my body's going to change. If I go barefoot for the next five years, my body's going to change, right? So I really do believe you can adapt to everything. You are absolutely not stuck. That's probably the reason why biohacking is so interesting, even though the term it's in and of itself has kind of been ruined by certain you know, people. But like the, the whole point of it is that you can make changes. Um, and for me, the perspective is to make positive nourishing adaptations to our benefit. The more conscious you are of what you are able to do, what is out there, what, if there is an ideal for you and your goals and your environment to create those positive adaptations to your benefit. Like your, my entire job right now with me, myself, my patients, my family, my friends is to figure out what the hell is your goal? What are the positive adaptations that will nourish you and help you? And that's it. That's all you're doing. Because if you're not doing that, then you're just allowing something unconscious to run your life. Right. And usually it's not to your benefit. So absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. You know, I always think about pigs in this context and the, the effect that environment has on us as just, you know, an animal. You know, you take a pig, a big fat farmyard pig, it's it's big, it's pink, it's lethargic, it's docile. You put it out in the woods and over a matter of months, it turns into a completely different animal. It, it grows giant tusks. It like changes color, right? It starts getting really bristly and grows all this hair. I notice a very similar thing when I change my environment because, you know, I environment hop a lot and going from the city, going from saying living in a colder temperate climate, that's a lot more structured and civilized to going out and living in the jungle, I look like a drastically different person. I mean, even me just like getting out of kind of that more feral environment for a month has changed me drastically. And it's it's so ridiculous how much our environment, whether we know it or not, subconsciously affects us. And I try to pinpoint a lot of the reasons and rationale behind it. Sure, you can bring up things like, you know, light environment, EMF environment, you know, food environment. But I think a lot of it is also just 
your body is incredible at, adap at adapting to whatever the environment requires of it. That's why I think we see with like mixed martial artists a lot, like the biggest nerdiest mixed martial artist can go in or be pre mixed martial arts, huge nerd, whatever, probably horrible endocrine function, go in and train. And even though he's not doing everything right from a biological standpoint, that environment is forcing him to be a lot more robust and be a lot more resilient. And it shows in their demeanor and it shows in their physicality. Yeah. I mean, a, a really simple example is, you know, when people who work a lot in like for two, three, four years, and then they finally give themselves the quote unquote treat of going on vacation for two weeks, four weeks, and they are literally completely different people, you know, emotionally, psychologically, physically, their nutrition change, everything just changes, right? That's like the most extreme example for, for, for most people. That's when they'll notice it because most people don't environment hop. And I think it's really healthy to environment hop until you find the environment that suits you, that you're able to function in the best because some people just aren't meant for the desert, right? Some people need humidity. Some people don't, right? Like, uh, like we had a lot of allergies, breathing problems, like digestion problems. And if you move around, eventually those disappear because you're where you need to be. Um, and to another point that you said, so like a really good example for me personally is like hit. So, you know, just interval inter training and the purpose of it. So like I have this thing where uh, I tell parents, like if you want the best for your kid, like for, for long terms, like put them into like a sport or many sports because the kids that go into sports and they run around fasted all the time, they're creating mitochondrial adaptations that will serve them later versus you are 35, 45 and you're starting, you, this is when you're starting to do those adaptations is a completely different story, right? So, and I only found that out because I didn't do those adaptations and then I decided to do those adaptations. And I noticed that now in my life, I have to be doing something. It doesn't have to be hit, it doesn't have to be an assault bike. It could be anything, right? It doesn't matter. But I need that stimulus. I need it no matter what. Um, and that's like one of those positive adaptations forever that will be a part of me. You, you say you need it. You, you need it just to feel your best. Is that what you're alluding to? Uh, uh, so from a physical, like physical objective standpoint, like there's just too many benefits, like on a hormonal level, on a metabolic level, et cetera. You know, from a primitive level too, it's then it's, you know, there's confidence in it. There's aggression in it. There's uh, primitivity in it. It's more living as opposed to being docile and immobile. Right. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I need that as well. You know, I've been experimenting or I did experiment with kind of lower volume training, right? Like really focusing on, you know, not burning my body so much. And it was good, but you realize that a lot of the benefits, you know, they can't be reduced to like gaining muscle and, and losing fat. Like there, there's so many other components, you know, you mentioned, mentioned like the mitochondrial implications. For me, a lot of it's like the cognitive implications and realizing that your body will adapt to, you know, what it needs to do to survive in whatever state that it's in. But, you know, on the topic of HIT, like I said, I'm, I'm bulking and you mentioned fasted cardio and there's a lot of contention around fasted cardio. Some people are like, you know, it's just a great way to spike up your, your stress hormones and your catecholamines. Other people swear by it. What is your logic behind, you know, the importance of, of stress of fasted cardio or just, you know, your opinion on it in general? So I'm a huge fan of fasted cardio, but I think that it, it begs a, different question of like define fasted and then define what are the events that led into that cardio state because if i just spent three days gorging on donuts it's not going to be the same thing as if i just spent three days fasting and then i did my cardio so i think that is the main thing right some people are like oh you can eat donuts and then go do it it'll be the same it, it all do doesn't matter to me it does matter like if you just run people through the buckets i think there's just a 
positive to have if you're running on empty. Um, so stress hormones aside, I am, I am a big fan. Um, and like when I do fasted hit, let's say just push whatever, whatever you're doing to the limits, fasted hit versus fed hit. Um, I think there are different adaptations. If I was looking to be like athletic, I would be doing fed and performance based. If I was doing mitochondrial adaptations and trying to squeeze the living hell out of myself, it would be in the fastest state because that is like the survival. It's like, I woke up from my cave. I went to hunt for my food. I didn't catch my food. I went back to sleep. I woke up the next day saying, Hey, I have to catch my food and I sprinted and I got it and I ate it. Cool. And then I repeat that cycle. It's not the same as the guy who's gorging and gorging and gorging and then rushes after his food. Right. I, I love that. And I think about things in a very similar context. I try to kind of overlay everything to an evolutionary perspective. Like how would this yeah. make sense? What, what is this the equivalent of in our, you know, paleolithic environment? I find that really interesting. And, and, you know, it's so interesting too, because you look at all of these different fields and all these different schools of thought, and it shows so much like in each of their demeanor, you know, like what actions they're taking and what their philosophy is. Cause like Peters, for example, right? Like people that are big in the bioenergetic space, you know, we're talking about mitochondria yeah. and stuff, but they're very much about like no stress on the organism. And you look at them and this is nothing, I, I'm very much big into this whole idea of bioenergetics. But you look at a lot of the adherents and, and they look like they don't really push themselves from a like stress induction level. They don't look hardened. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not hating on them at all. But you compare them to someone who's doing like really high intensity training and doing a lot of these things where they're pushing themselves and they look a lot harder. You know, I don't know. You've probably seen something similar. I, I, I basically agree. So, the you know. He has interesting science and ideas and thoughts, but like when you look at the people who practice it as a whole, you know, I just very plain and simple, like you, you are, you're overweight, you carry too much fat, you're not healthy, you're not athletic. It doesn't look healthy to me personally. And I would not like to look like that. And if we line up all these people, like based on the activities that they do and do not do, like, I was just like, I want to look like the sprinter. I don't want to look like the guy who's doing endurance running period. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that so is true. just my, my 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 opinion on them because i i think it comes from a good place um and i think there's there's knowledge there but at the end of the day i do think that stress is absolutely paramount and necessary because life is going to stress you it just is and does and will you're not sitting in your living room forever just you know playing that's by that's actually the other thing that gets into um i had this conversation with the booth the other day is you know have you ever stressed your body enough to recognize what weaknesses you actually have? Because if you don't, how do you find those weaknesses? You know, everybody's like natty versus not natty supplements versus vitamins. Have you ever pushed your body, your system, your vessel to the point where you actually create a deficiency, a, a rate limiting step, which then you fill with nutrition, vitamins, supplements, whatever. And then it allows you to push your vessel further and then another deficiency. And then you fill it up and you go further. No, you haven't. Well, how, how, how can we be having the same conversation? It's not the same conversation. So I like to, like my patients push themselves, right? That's stress. I can't help. If you're not being stressed out, then why do you need me? Why do you need anything? If you're in an mm -hmm. unstressed state and your body's acting stressed or it has deficiencies, you need to fix that first. And then you can add in stress and just grow from there, right? So I think stress is a positive. Nothing happens if you don't get stressed out. I agree. I think stress is the foundation of every adaptation, right? Uh, hormesis yeah. is so important. A lot of the benefits we get from 
so many things are really just a result of them being relatively poisonous and our body yeah. adapting effectively. Yeah. And if there's one thing that I think we're good at, it's adaptation. So yeah. it's interesting to me, you know, I really try because a lot of these different like spaces in the health space, right? Like these schools of thought, they're fundamentally philosophies and religions, right? Like yeah. it really is about how you see the whole yeah. world, the way you do one thing, the way you do everything. Now, I really try to make an emphasis of practicing not aligning my identity and my ego with any one school of thought and just taking the good out of all of them. So with the bioenergetic space, they go to the extreme of avoiding all stressors and just always in states of abundance. Now, I take took that because I used to be almost on like the masochistic side of things where I would fast forever. I'd train three hours a day and I'd eat really like stressful foods, right? Foods with a lot of defense mechanisms. And I kind of started to wear it down. Now, I only prioritize the stressors that are going to lead to positive adaptations and provide utility. So a lot of the stressors I get rid of, blue light, like poor sleep, uh, EMFs, uh, poor nutrition, like poor dietary inclusions. I get rid of all of those lifestyle stressors. I get rid of those. So then I can put those like stress resiliency points because I feel like we only have so much stress resiliency. We can obviously acquire more, but then I apply that to things that are actually going to provide beneficial adaptations. And I, I think that's what a lot of the uh, bioenergetic people may miss or, you know, may benefit from, from utilizing, but it's like, why not utilize all those extra stress points you have to apply to things that are meaningful, right? Like hard work, you know, uh, hard physical activity, things that are going to make you better. Absolutely. Like couldn't agree more, especially to the original point that like, once you really niche out and go deeper and deeper and deeper, you basically just end up at the root, like at the tip of the tentacles of each philosophy and dogma. And if you just stay there, you'll get stuck. And it, there is, I think you have to explore every single one, you know, take what resonates, dump the rest, and then apply it to you and your goals, because otherwise you will get stuck. You can't just do keto. You can't just go full bore bodybuilding hardcore. You can't just do CrossFit full bore hardcore because you feel like it fizzles out. Like everybody that I've met who's at the extreme tip of everything, it, it doesn't always pan out. Right. And the people that I see that make it the longest, and by the way, but make it the longest, like we also have to define what is our goal? What is our biohacking goal? What is our anti-aging goal? My anti-aging biohacking goal is not to live to 150. It's to, you know, at 65 years old to have, you know, vitality, virility, to look good naked, to keep up with little children, to be able to eat food without my body freaking out or getting fat, you know, to be able to recover and regenerate. Right. It really is to still operate like I'm 30. That is my goal and it is achievable. I've met them. I have them as patients. That's the goal. So everything is aligned for that goal. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really important. Now I'm curious, like I, I, I'm like pretty, I wouldn't say neurotic, but I'm very skeptical of like environmental, modern environmental infractions, right? Particularly EMF and light environment you know, from going from a place where there was subsequently very little EMF exposure, you know, light environment was optimal, a lot of grounding, a lot of sunlight, a lot of nature to going back to a more modern environment. I noticed those infractions. Um, like, what is your take on that? You know, I see you like in inside with uh, AirPods on, like, is that kind of overblown? Yeah. You know, does it have a role? Because Abood takes a very similar stance, right? It's like, yeah, it, it, it's a factor, but I don't think it's it's a big enough factor for me to disregard the utility of, say, you know, wireless headphones. And I wonder this too, because sometimes I use AirPods while I work out. Yeah, I was actually looking for my wired ones and like, shit, we're going to talk about this, aren't we? Here we go. And um, <laughs> so very similar. Listen, 
if somebody hasn't spent like a week in a forest, I highly encourage it. And then to go into a like quote unquote real city, like go to LA, go to New York. Okay. Tell me you don't feel a difference. That's step one. Um, if you can't tell the difference, then you're not sensitive enough to feel the difference. That's another conversation to have. Is the stuff real? Absolutely. Are some people more sensitive than others? Absolutely. Can some people get away with more than others? Absolutely. Everything's a spectrum, right? Some people can have as much gluten as they want. Some people can't even smell it in the air, whatever. Um, I think there is also like leverage and priority. Some people care more about the polyester in their t-shirt rather than the food that they eat or the activity or the emotional stress that they're going through. Right. So, um, if there's a hierarchy, I think there's, there's various hierarchies to it. I think blue light is absolutely wild. I think controlling manipulating light to your benefit is probably very, very high ROI. Um, I think AirPods, you know, it's, it's just very obviously not great that there's something between my two ears hitting my brain, but you know, I think, you know, everything in ratio is, is it going to kill me? Is this going to be my downfall or is it one of my other 27 bad habits? That's how I look at it. Um, if we're being perfect, then yeah, avoid it where, where the wires do the, do the tubes, you know, use a speaker, whatever works. Um, do I freak out? No. Again, I see it on Twitter a lot. Like, oh, I threw out all my, my polyester stuff and I'm wearing only cotton and then they wear the muffs or, you know, they're eating shit or they don't work out or, you know, they're not handling their 30 pounds overweight. It's like, that's, that's not the most important thing for you. And let's say we do all of these. So my favorite conversation is amidst and amongst all of this biohacking, anti-aging stuff, I always revert to stress in the sense of emotional, spiritual stress that basically everybody's dealing with and your, your own thoughts are probably going to kill you before these AirPods are going to kill you. That, that's truly where I lie. Because when I meet all these people that have everything together and their health is all together, I'm like, can you just, can you sit in a quiet room without freaking out? And how is your life like that? So like, to me, that's the deepest lever to really work on and then working outwards. But yeah, I think light is as far as like what Twitter pilled me on, because light was probably the one thing that wasn't super big on my radar, but I always felt it. And then after playing with it lately, um, we did a test and I'm doing a test with a booter now too. I did like, uh, basically 30 days, no sun. And in 30 days, I can literally feel my hair fall out and my energy. And within like five days, I'll be depressed, low energy. But in uh, 30 days, my hair was thinning and see-through and falling out. And then we started doing, um, doing some peptide work and some oils while focusing on red light and infrared light. And everything woke up, right? The depression goes away in three to five days. The energy comes back immediately. And then the hair starts growing, right? So light is huge. You know, how you watch TV, um, what kind of bulbs, et cetera. And then there's that whole extreme conversation of like, you know, people can spend a year talking about buy these bulbs, not these bulbs and, and so on. So I think it's, it's, there's, there's a macro and a micro there's obsessive. And then there's, Hey, like focus on the levers that do the most and, go to the next thing that's most important. I like that approach. I resonate with that. I believe a lot of people major in the minors because I think it's human nature to want a scapegoat. You know, mm -hmm. I think since the beginning of time, we've always been looking for the one thing that is the root cause of all of our problems. So you just jump to whatever that is, right? Oh, it's the polyester. Like it's, it's cause I'm wearing compression shorts it's because these yeah. lights are too strong. I think yeah. a lot of that's cope. At, at the end leptin. of the day, a lot of it is <laughs> Every, everything's yeah. leptin and sun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly yeah it's it's the blue light you know but in reality it's a culmination of things like we're a very complex organism we're not just going to be immediately impacted by one input it's a multitude of inputs 
that are going to define, you know, our, our state, right? Whether it's good or bad. So I catch myself doing that. It's always a recency bias as well. It's like, oh, it's because of that mold exposure I had when I was 16, because you just learned about mold. It's like, oh, because I have a parasite. <laughs> it's, it's a culmination of things because any biological infraction oftentimes makes you more susceptible to biological infractions elsewhere. So I really try to avoid that. And you mentioned something. It's also about like, what is the utility of it, right? Like when I'm going and I'm doing jujitsu, right? And I'm rolling around on a mat with a bunch of dudes, I'm going to wear polyester, right? Because I, there, there's really no other option. If there's yeah. another option that's just as convenient, I'm going to take it. But the ability for me to avoid getting staff and avoid smelling like shit and sweating all over my buddies is higher than the 30 minutes <laughs> that I'll be wearing plastic. Right. And I'll make up for that elsewhere. The same with AirPods. Right. Like I there's utility in me being able to squat while listening to a really, really solid song. That's going to give me more energy. In the day. It's going to enable me to get more endorphins out of that workout. And, you know, all of these are, are such big applications that I don't think people look at because we think in such binary terms. And I think that's the one fault of, of Western culture in particular. I went to school in Bangkok for a while, and that really opened my eyes to seeing how other cultures look at everything as more gray space. You know, some cultures do, some cultures don't. But uh, yeah, avoiding the binary nature of like classifying everything as good and bad is really important. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't say it better. It's the the utility, and and it's what is your utility of it too? Like, if you need it to move ahead in your life, do it. What are you not because somebody on the internet told you to? Like maybe it's up to you to find out if this is a biological infraction to use your own words. Is it a biological infraction to you or is it just to the guy on the internet? Mm. Well, you mentioned something earlier about sensitivity, right? Like if you're not noticing that you feel great when you're in nature, it's because you're not sensitive. What drives that ability to be sensitive to your environment? I don't think I can even pretend to have the answer to that. Um, you know, I don't have a scientific answer by any means. It's just all anecdotal. It's just the more you are, I fall into biofeedback. So the more you are in tune to your body, to what feels good, what doesn't feel good. And you literally just listen. Can I explain it? Absolutely not. But can I tell you if I eat this burrito, if you know, my butt burns <laughs> on the way out? Yeah. That's all I need to know. <laughs> that's all I need to know. I don't have to explain it or anything like that. It's just like, all right, lesson learned. So it's kind of the same thing. If you wear headphones and your head hurts, then you probably shouldn't wear headphones. Um, shouldn't push it either. But I think it's just all experiment and trial. Sensitivity just, again, is if you keep working on these nourishing things as you go, and then something smacks you and says, this doesn't feel good. That's the sign that I need. You know, I, I don't think I'm ever going to, I'm into quantum. But to say that I'm going to devote my next 20 years to understanding and intellectualizing, I think is a waste of my time because intellectualizing, it doesn't do me any good really. And it doesn't do others that much good either. It's not my role. What would do good is to understand actionable steps and takes, and then see the various buckets of people and community and then guide myself and my patients and my friends, et cetera to what are the best actions that we can and cannot take based on the biofeedback that you're receiving, right? So I have my own biofeedback. I understand others' biofeedback and what they say. So they might say something and it's indicative of, you know, them not feeling good from blue light. So you hear them say one thing, but you know, something else is going on. So that's where I'm primarily interested in. So what it ends up being is just 
what are the various triggers and biological infractions that exist that could be impacting others. So that's where I'm at, I think, with it. Um, I like that you mentioned intellectualizing it does no good. And that's something that I come back to a lot because I always have a strong desire to rationalize things. And it was actually during a period of me yeah. spending a bunch of time in the junk, like in the forest, you know, two weeks without any phone or any exposure to anything for that matter, that realizing that that desire to rationalize everything is like a, a modern man's ego for all intents and purposes. And the reality is that like the rationalizing part of our brain is so recently developed. It's so new and novel that a majority of our decisions and of our thinking processes, they're all intuition based, right? Like our older functions of our brain, our gut, you know, those are the things that really drove our decisions for a majority of our existence. And we're being kind of coerced into trying to overly rationalize things because that's what, you know, culture wants of us. But I do realize that there's a lot of things that, you know, my intuition can discern better than my, my rational functions or my rational faculties. And I believe that you have to listen to that intuition. The ability to become attuned to that intuition is a skill. The less you use it, the less you're going to be sensitive to it. And also like on the topic of biological infractions, the more that you have that, like the more noise you have from low grade inflammation, you know, gut issues, neuroinflammation, a lot of these things, the less signal you'll be able to discern through all that noise. So I find that really interesting. I really, you know, I think some people have more attunement to that intuition. They have better pattern recognition. It aligns a lot with people that have ADHD, interestingly enough. And I have some pretty uh, like strong thoughts on ADHD, but I'm still very much trying to understand it because of how much of an influence it's had. But anyway, moving on in terms of, I guess, in, like learning new behaviors, right? This is something that I'm really interested in, especially with traits. Cause a lot of people say like, I can't focus. I don't like reading. I, I don't like writing. I don't like doing a lot of things. I'm not charismatic. I'm, I'm not outgoing. I found that it's actually really easy to kind of change that. And a lot of it's just like adapting, forcing yourself to adapt, getting through that, that like butt period, which I usually find being about 21 days, 21 days seems to be the threshold. It takes 21 yep. days for a house to become a home. It takes 21 days for you to acclimate to most new environments. Um, like what is your approach to that? Like I, you know, Leo, we talk about Leo and longevity. I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with him as well. One of his best videos, in my opinion, was him talking about how he completely changed himself in college by removing all negative stimuli, all negative activities and negative things that he didn't want in his life anymore. Music, video games, just cheap dopamine and replacing it with, you know, boring stuff and essentially lowering his, his dopaminergic stimuli baseline and then utilizing a dopaminergic agent. Like I believe he used Vivan. So that's actually in, in like not only inhibiting the breakdown of dopamine, but actually increasing the release of dopamine. And he was able to completely change his character traits, you know, even after getting off the drug, like, is that feasible? Is that realistic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, people might hate to hear this, but like, you just don't want it bad enough. You either want it or you don't. There's, there's put yourself, get rid of your couch, get rid of your TV, get rid of all that. And then put what you need in front of you and do that for 21 days. My number is also 21 days. The, the higher end number is three months. If you can't do it in three months, then you're, the protocol approach isn't good enough, right? I just don't think it takes that long to make drastic changes. Um, 
when I was going to school, like I, I, it's basically forcing functions and it's protocol design, it's lifestyle design. And this is one of the favorite conversations and it can be infinite about anything, but essentially you just create forcing functions to create the outcome that you want. You know, I was going to school, I was running a business, I was working out full time, I was coaching all at the same time. You know, it might sound silly and stupid or whatever, but I was like, I don't, I didn't have a couch. And I told myself like, you don't need a couch. If you're sitting on the couch, then you're not doing what you should be doing. Because at that time, that's what like I needed just to focus. So if you get rid of the distractions, and I believe that everything external to you is a distraction. And since you don't get to control it, you need to control what you consume and what you allow in. Just get rid of the distractions and only allow the things that nourish you, the music, the media, the books, the people the friendships, the family, the activities, all of that, like to as far as what your control is, you get to manipulate that and then you get an outcome. And if you don't like the outcome, keep manipulating it. If you say that, oh, it's not possible, it's not done. I, don't, I just don't think you've tried hard enough or you've, you've arranged it appropriately. Um, because if I put you in a room full of books that keep saying the same thing, eventually you can brainwash yourself, reprogram yourself to that message. So if you're not in control of that message, then somebody else is. So I hope you're in control of that message. I hope you're in control of your food. I hope you're in control of your fitness and your health. I hope you're in control of your light environment. And that's kind of where it all starts with protocol and lifestyle design, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think a big thing there too is we think there's only one way to accomplishing a goal. So then we try oh, yeah. that way and we're like, well, it doesn't work, so I'm done. In reality, sometimes you just need to work smarter, not harder. Try something new, approach it from a different, like different standpoint. I think even more effectively apply two different approaches, combine them, and that might be the best one for you. Yeah. On that topic, yeah. moving on. Just um, try everything. Let's talk about- Try everything. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Try it, gather data, make hypotheses and, and apply them. But, um, you know, in terms of, of making drastic changes, like I said, right now, I'm bulking, I'm acquiring mass. I, I find it also interesting how m when my physical goals change, my entire approach to everything changes. Like the second I committed to like gaining mass, I've almost changed just like my, my lifestyle has changed. My activities have changed. My cognition has all changed. I find that very interesting. Can't even begin to rationalize it. But um, let, let's talk about mass gaining. You know, I'm, I'm in that phase now. We were mentioning, you know, I respond really well because I'm insulin sensitive. Like, what kind of is your approach? I, I've seen before you write about how you've put on a bunch of mass in a very small amount of time. Um, what is your approach to that? What is What are the nuances to gaining mass for people that want to, you know, get bigger and essentially make a, a large physical change? Yeah. And to your, to your previous comments, you know, you defined what your goal was. You made a conviction to pursue that goal and then your protocol adapted to it. As soon as your goal changes, your protocol changes, right? So the current protocol is to put on mass, which means that whatever needs to realign will realign to that high, high goal. Um, in terms of gaining mass, it's really, it's, it's essentially the same for everyone. It's just how effective and efficient is your system, right? Your overall hormones are going to control the ceiling. Um, and then you have, let's say fitness input, some sort of physical thing that's going to stimulate muscle growth or activity growth. Like even if you're an athlete, right, you just have to push. So once those are done, then it's a metabolic game, a nutritional game. And then we're looking at optimizing 
insulin, insulin secretion, we're optimizing muscle protein synthesis, um, and basically pushing the caloric bounds and you push those until you break. Right? So I think that if you create an appropriate protocol and you push it to the limits, you wait until the human messes up, starts having cheat meals, starts drinking, falls off the plan, or your body taps out and says, it's like in this overexhausted range where your insulin sensitivity starts reversing into insulin resistance. Um, you might go through a hormonal flux, hormonal issue, like your testosterone drops off for whatever reason, like a stress. Um, those are usually your blocking points because you can't gain forever because you just become inefficient and your body says no more and you can't lose forever because you can become inefficient. So that's why I'm a fan of pulsing and toggling. But in terms of like, let's say you have a person who is primed and you are primed. That's the other conversation. What is your starting point? You have a primed, healthy, insulin sensitive, mitochondrial adapted, light, healthy, leptin, healthy, whole food, nutrition, healthy, digestive, healthy starting point. That's not most people's starting point. But so let's say this is your starting point. We would literally just increase calories. So whatever your goal body weight is, then we could start manipulating protein, protein, OG, triple bodybuilding stuff will be like, Hey man, two grams per pound of body weight. That's like super extreme. So anywhere between one gram to two grams or whatever you can comfortably digest per meal following your hunger would be the intuitive route. And then you start playing with, you know, carbs and fats, um, you know, fat for natty health signaling for hormonal things to keep going. Uh, pretty big fan of cholesterol saturated fats and then carbohydrates in terms of glycogen manipulation right so depending on the activity that you're doing how you exercise are you a mensner type are you a crossfit type how do you actually dispose of all that glucose and all that glycogen and how efficiently can you do it once that system is operational and churning you simply just watch input output input output while increasing the levers of the macros that you need based on the activity, right? So you start running out of fuel, add the carbohydrates. If you're super starving, start looking at proteins and fats. If you are not recovering, you have DOMS, you're not getting as strong as you feel that you should be. It's a protein and amino acid issue. Zooming in deeper, you start looking to your, you know, pair-workout nutrition, pre-workout, intra-workout, post-workout nutrition, and you make sure that that, frame, that window is optimized. Um, because really, if you ask me what is the most important part of it, it is the peri-workout nutrition. Um, and then you go in either direction outwards and then that's it. So as a systems, like as a conceptual framework, that's the framework. What do you want to zoom in on? Got I guess. I love all of that. I think the insulin secretion optimizing, that's really important. Can we dig a little bit deeper into that? Yeah. So obviously like a lot of us, most yeah. of us don't have good starting some of us do what, what are the things like if you were to start eating more, what things would you do to make sure that, you know, that those nutrients are being shuttled properly, that you're maintaining sensitivity so that, you know, they're not just being stored as fat or just, you know, absolutely eradicating, destroying your, your, your blood glucose. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple pillars here, but obviously around your activity, um, would be the most optimal, um, because you're in a higher insulin sensitivity state. So you do the workout, you have better insulin sensitivity, you have a reason, you have something to shuttle, you have muscle protein synthesis to feed, you have to have something for the glucose to feed. If you just eat to eat, it doesn't go anywhere. So you have to have a reason for it to go somewhere and keep everything in circulation. That's one. Um, even during a bulk, I'm very, very, very fond of people doing 
their hit activity and they're doing their cardio activity. So maintaining the idea of flux at all times and not thinking, oh, I'm going on a bulk, so I'm going to cut my cardio in half and I'm going to stop doing all these activities. No, it's quite the opposite. I, I want to view it as a, an athletic approach where you're just going to perform better and I'm going to keep increasing the calories and you, you stay being that machine so you don't turn into a marshmallow. Um, I think digestion is, is a big deal. So, you know, respecting that after you eat your meal, you need enough time to digest it, excuse me, digest it and then allow the blood sugar to fall before your next meal. So that's like a really simple, easy one is just to make sure that as soon as your blood sugar equalizes, you can technically eat again. Oops. Can you still hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Interesting. So, right, you, so you can technically eat again. What would happen if, say, you, you know, because a lot, a lot of people, when they go bulk, they do a meal every 30 minutes. Obviously, there's digestive implications, but when it comes to balancing back out that blood sugar before the next meal, why is that so important? Because if you, if you have a wave of insulin already running and you start another one, it never fell down. So you would be, you'd, you'd have this one wave and the, ideally then you'd have another wave. And then ideally you'd wait and you have another wave. So each one of those is a wave versus if you start this wave and then you eat again and eat again, now it looks like you're on this one long, giant, unstoppable wave. It's similar to the idea of long acting insulin. Um, the problem with long acting insulin is that if your nutrition is inappropriate, you're going to start storing. If insulin is always active, you're always storing. If you're always storing, you're going to get fat. The idea is to not get fat. Get jacked, get big, shuttle the glycogen, do the things, maximize muscle protein synthesis, but don't get fat. <laughs> you mm. will gain some, right? That's not the that's not what we're talking about here. It's just don't create the scenario. My example was I was I was experimenting with this and I would have like three meals. I was working in an office and it was like uh Halloween time. And I would have like three meals. And I did this experiment simply of having a meal and then having like a, like a baby Snickers or whatever those candies you'd give out. And then I did another experiment where I have the meal and then in between my meals in the middle, I would have, you know, the candy. When I had the separation, meaning food, weight, candy, weight, food, I got fat. Like I gained like 10 pounds, like in two weeks, I got fat. Versus if I had the meal with the candy right at the end for dessert, wait a long period of time, meal with the candy. So it's caloric, right? But it allowed my body time in between meals. So being really conscious of what your insulin is doing is very important to me. That's why fasting helps so many people. That's why I don't believe in grazing. I think grazing is bullshit. You eat under 500 calories, but you literally never stop eating the whole day. You're going to be skinny fat, right? That's how that works. Calories aren't high right? Your meals aren't big, but your insulin is never quiet, right? And insulin is literally a light switch. Like if, if you put a, not even a teaspoon of water into this thing and you take a sip, congratulations, insulin for this moment got active. It may not be a lot or whatever, but it's still active. And in that moment, all the machinery that insulin controls is on and basically all the fat loss machinery is turned off until you wait for the switch to go off again. And then the fat loss machinery is on. So I like to stay in fat loss mode while toggling the anabolics, right? Mm -hmm. Without forgetting how the machinery operates. 
Interesting. I find that very interesting. I, I think, you know, one thing that I do quite intuitively is I do segment my, my fat and my carbohydrates, right? So typically I, I want to yep. get those fats. Like I love cholesterol like you are. I think it's really important for those hormonal building blocks and fat soluble vitamins. But I typically have one meal a day where it's very high fat outside of, you know, with those meals where I'm spiking insulin. And we know that insulin does play a role in signaling for fat storage, you know, putting away. And obviously a lot of that's going to be also signaling for nutrient shuttling to your muscle cells. But that, that's something that I try to do. It's so interesting to me because when we look at these things at, at like a higher scale, most people are like, you're either in a building mode or you're in a, in a, a losing mode, right? It's either cutting or bulking. But in reality, like from what I've seen and from what I've seen from you as well, it seems that that, that fluctuation is a lot smaller than we think, you know, that, that pulsing, as you call it. Yep. Do you think that's like a, a common misconception that we have, that if you're in a bulking state, you have to be only bulking and bulking the entire time. There's going to yeah. be no like fat loss that's going to happen during that state. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a misconception. I think it's dogma. I think it's religion philosophy. I think it's old school bodybuilding. I think it's old school nutrition. I think it's old school. You can't, you can't build muscle and lose fat at the same time, which is a correct statement, but I can build muscle for this block of time and I can lose fat for this block of time. And that period of time is very, very short. You know, you were even touching it. Like you were talking about like something about seven days. Like everything's very quick on you because you're sensitive. Again, look at look at end stage bodybuilding. Look at four weeks out, where every single meal you can literally see in the mirror. When you're lean enough and healthy enough, you will eat. Go in the mirror, and you can literally watch your body change, watch your vascularity change, watch how the water moves throughout your body. It's it's so simple. And then and then add in a workout and just watch it literally flow through you. Watch you run out of juice. Watch you run out of resources. And then come back, eat another meal, and you can literally watch what your body, how it soaks up. You eat three olives because you can literally, you're out of sodium, you put it up, your vascularity pops up. And then what happens when you are in this insulin state and you basically deplete all your glycogen, and if you appropriately refeed, you can literally watch yourself completely refill your glycogen. And then you can also watch yourself spill over. And that's the game. The game is to make sure that you, you know, don't fall too far out. And if you can get a handle on this game, you get to play the game longer. I think it's just, it's been deconstructed and oversimplified that, hey, I'm going to give you 16 weeks to cut, 16 weeks to bulk. Okay, what if this person at 12 weeks got fat? They need to stop. They don't keep going. What about the opposite? What if at 16 weeks, everything just finally, you know, chef's kiss, fired off? Keep going. Listen to the biofeedback. There's people that after four weeks of bulking, they should be done. Like you fucked up, <laughs> you're fat. Your system's broken. Reset. Try again. Same thing with fat loss. Like there's just the time when your body's like, please feed me, please feed me, please feed me. Right. So my lifestyle approach to it is, you know, I look at everything. It's, 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 it's cyclical. It's, it's toggling. It's pulsatile, right? Within, within a week, you can go through the full spectrum of, I created an anabolic phase. I created a lipolytic phase. I created a fast, deeper fat loss phase. And I did it over and over again while maintaining insulin sensitivity. When somebody's bulking, the idea is just to turn on all the thrusters without breaking things. A big rule for me has been for years and like I'm borderline scared to say it publicly because it just gets everybody's panties into knots. Don't mix carbs and fats. It's that simple. Separate them too. It's proteins and carbs, proteins and fats. That for 80% of the population will solve so many of their problems. Quit eating PB&J sandwiches and burgers and donuts. You can still enjoy things, right? But if you just take a break for like a month, you will literally freak out what your body does. 
calories being the same, by the way. Calories being identical, right? Yeah, I noticed that too. And people always get so mad when I say that. But it makes sense mechanistically. Hey, and then what? also anatomically, it's the <laughs> biggest factor. You see biggest factor. If I modulate my macronutrients, keeping my daily macronutrient intake the same, but changing at what point I consume all of those, it's, it's such a drastic difference. So don't mix carbs and fats. There's something else that you mentioned here that I want. Oh, yeah, let's talk about like, I've been experimenting with glucose disposal agents. I don't call them, I prefer calling them glucose shuttling mm. agents, but you know, I'm using a lot, utilizing berberine, yeah. utilizing a lot more cinnamon right? Uh, taurine even is a hypoglycemic. Now I'm using those while I'm trying to gain mass. And those are oftentimes used as weight loss drugs. But my objective is to make sure that that glucose that I'm consuming is going towards my muscle cells as opposed to my fat cells. Yeah. You think that, that, that's a sensible thing yep. to do well in a, a mass gaining state. Absolutely. Mass gain, fat loss, it's epic benefits. I mean, you want to control your sugars, you want to shuttle the nutrients, like you said, like the only thing that would really add is like berberine and alpha lipoic acid are probably the heaviest hitters that are just easy to get. Um, ALA for glut forward transportation, berberine for the 10 million positive things it does, you know, somebody might come yeah. in and argue like, Oh, but it might block AMPK activation and you won't, you won't, you won't grow so much muscle. Maybe that's so, but it's shuttling my nutrients better, which means I can bulk healthier longer. That's the point. Yes. I could do this longer. I could stay anabolic more effectively longer before the system just burns out and I have to stop. What most people do is they don't stop. They just push, oh, I gained 10 pounds, I'm on a bulk. Uh, I gained 20, you look 25 pounds overweight because you've been eating KFC because you're like, I gotta get my calories. I'm like, you're just fat. And now you're gonna spend the next 16 weeks losing 20 pounds of fat just to see the same amount of muscle than when you started with. Yes. Absolutely. I, you know, I also approach it from that standpoint. And I, and I feel like I, it's like not a lot of people do. So I always feel like I'm out of the loop there. But yeah, bulk healthier, longer, play the game longer, better. That's the real key. Because, you know, it, it really comes down to, I think we were talking about this earlier, like you want to look more like a sprinter than an endurance athlete. And I would always look up to people yeah. that were athletes. And I would hate the fact that all of my favorite athletes did not have a lot of longevity. They started looking like shit very quickly. A lot of like the really high performing mixed martial artists, because they're doing these crazy diets, these weight cuttings, this extensive training, multiple hours a day, they end up looking like shit immediately, right? A lot of these bodybuilders as well, they end up looking like shit pretty quickly. Now, bulk healthier, longer, yeah. that would include doing things like, you know, improving your, uh, controlling your sugars and nutrient shuttling with, you know, ALA, berberine, and some of these other glucose shuttling agents. Cardio is another factor in that. I like the idea of athletic bulking. Huge. Uh, on the topic of, yeah, on the topic of this as well, let's see what we're going through here. Um, obviously not eating like shit. Um, if you were to try to convince somebody <laughs> why they mix carbs and fats, right? From like a mechanistic standpoint, why shouldn't I, right? Like uh, pretend like I'm someone that's ignorant, but like is relatively scientifically literate. Like why shouldn't I mix carbs <laughs> and fats? That's how I information. Yeah. Listen, listen, I'll give you my asshole response. My response to those people is I'm not here to convince you of shit. Keep doing what you're doing. Have fun. Okay. That's my response. Number one, uh, response number two to somebody who's actually interested in trying something new and being open-minded and not trying to, you know, have this fucking pissing contest is it's, it's really, really simple. Insulin is a spaceship, a spaceship that'll launch off into storage and, you know, the anabolic heavens, the spaceship needs people on it you can't just if you inject insulin something better go on that spaceship 
Otherwise, you're going to go into a coma. Okay. It doesn't care who goes on the spaceship. Protein, amino acids, fats, free, free form liberated acids, or just, you know, acids, fatty acids, and uh, carbs. It doesn't care. But somebody has to go on the spaceship. So certain customers, when they go on the spaceship, different things happen. And when different groups of customers go on the spaceship, different things happen. When I allow protein customers on the spaceship, my muscles grow, they recover, they regenerate. When I allow carbohydrate customers on the spaceship, they go into something called glycogen. It's pretty cool. When I <laughs> allow fatty acids onto my spaceship, those motherfuckers make a ruckus and I start looking like a marshmallow. Hmm. So I started doing this thing where called discrimination. I did experiments. What if I only allow protein on the spaceship? Cool. What if I only allow carbs on the spaceship? Not as cool, but pretty cool. What if I allow carbs and proteins? Pretty cool. But man, every time I added those fat customers on, they just kind of fuck shit up. That's the explanation. If you have insulin active and you let fat onto your insulin, where is it going to go? That's it. That's the end of my discussion on that. But hey, I'm not discriminatory. I love fatty acid customers in my body. They do so much health. I love what they do to the communication of my cells. I love what they do to my hormones. I love what they do to my skin. By the way, bodybuilders look 10 years shitty because they do what? A low-fat diet. What the fuck? Why would you do a low-fat diet when your cells literally communicate the, the, the layer, the wall, that controls the communication is what made out of fatty fucking asses. What do you do? You starve yourself of fat so you can look good for one day. Mm. Hair falls out, lose your period, your dick doesn't work. Awesome. So fat is not the problem. It's just don't mix them. So like you, I basically have a high protein, high fat or high protein, high carb. That's it. It's real simple. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, yeah, I think that's that's simple enough. I do that. In terms of when is the most optimal time to have that high fat meal, I like having my high fat meal first thing in the morning. Mm. I find that my brain works exceptionally well yeah. on ketones, right? I love utilizing beta hydroxybutyrate. I love utilizing medium train triglycerides that can be broken down into those ketones. Um, and maybe that's, you know, once again, looking at why maybe there's something wrong with carbohydrate metabolism in my brain, the mitochondria in my brain. And, um, you know, that's why I kind of emphasize that. But I, we do know that insulin sensitivity is pretty high in the morning. You know, does it make sense to have that high fat meal in the morning or does it not really matter? My response to that is based on your lifestyle and when your training activity is, and then what are your goals with your nutrition, right? There's, there's a lifestyle conversation and there's like a fitness athleticism conversation and you can mix the two. Basically it's really simple. Most people do better either fasted or on fats but they're very sensitive due to their insensitivity of health. As the carbs come in and they fall, you get bogged down. I don't, I don't necessarily mean there's something wrong with your brain. I just think it's just the function of carbs. Like there's a rising and there's a falling. There's no rising and falling in a fast state. And there's no rising and falling in when you're eating fats. It just doesn't happen. So that's my opinion on that. Um, uh, abiding that you're hydrated which for most people, if they would just stay hydrated, they would do just fine in a high fat state or in a, you know, fasted state. 
But most people, due to the dehydration, get hungry. They reach for something that's, you know, carby or whatever the normal mixed lunch is. And they feel good. They feel satiated, get a little drowsy and tired, and then they kind of bog down. So it's really just ineffective lifestyle operations there. Um, for me personally, like uh, today is a reefy day. So throughout the day, I'll do a lot of walking. I'll do some active cardio in terms of like 60 minutes of 140 heart rate just to squeeze out the rest of my fat for this block. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the day eating every three hours, carbohydrate rich meals with moderate protein with basically no fat because I just don't need it now. And let me tell you, I don't feel great doing it. It's a physical thing. It's to accomplish my physical goals. It is not to accomplish my life goals, work goals, my focus goals, none of that, right? It's, it's what I, my physical body needs, but it's not optimal for anything. I'm bogged down. I'm tired. I'm farting. I might get distended if I eat the wrong carb, whatever, right? Like you play, start playing with those games is, is which carbs are the best carbs for you. Like potatoes are awesome. Um, but if I go eat like some enough white bread or something like that or donuts, it's not going to end well. But my goal is for tomorrow to have the most anabolic lift of my life, to get a sick pump, to replenish my glycogen, so then I could do another one of these cycles, right? So it is it is focusing on what is your goal. Most people, carbs aren't bad, right? But if you're trying to focus and, and be super sharp, it's usually not the way to go. Otherwise, you and I would be sipping on cyclic dextrin right now. You know, I don't know why Peters don't do it if, if sugar is the fucking way you're fuck broke go get some dextrin just sip on that all day mm -hmm. yeah well you know that's something interesting to me one thing that because i was in a, in like the relatively like you know bioenergetic state in terms of just eating carbohydrates throughout the day orange juice fruit juices all the time 24 7 because i was keeping my fast yeah. low i performed extremely well on it from a physical standpoint but i found that my mental acuity was not where i wanted it to be i wasn't as sharp i wasn't as acute but at the same time, in order for me to get into those states, because I was just in like a sugar maxing state, I would need more sugars for those times. And I, I assume a lot of that was to get me out of that yeah. insulin crash. Um, but I do notice yeah. that, like, say before this call, if I did have an orange juice, I would feel a little bit higher energy, you know, and obviously it's because of the sugar. But mm -hmm. this, this concept of, of almost like micro dosing carbohydrates does seem to be effective for me as well. Um, I, I assume that's just like more sugar, like it's probably fickle, right? The second that, that, that spike drops off, I'd probably decrease my function, but you know, is, is that kind of the, the logic there? It's just that, that spike, you know, that fickle spike to, that's giving me more. Yeah, to, it, 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 it literally sounds to me that you're just injecting sucrose inside yourself and running on sucrose, which is great. But like I go into, you know, whatever you want to call it, evolutionary biology, <laughs> that wasn't an option. That doesn't seem natural. That doesn't seem normal. It's not, it's not normal to eat all the time. Like period. It's just not normal to eat all the time. It is normal to starve. So would I want to train my body to be more adapted to operating like that and then feeding it? Or do I want to adapt my body that, Hey, don't worry. You have permanent abundance and it's in the form of sugar. And then somebody takes it away from me. Hmm. Yeah, it is and quite that, dependent. And then literally that not translating. Yeah, it's super dependent, you know? It's 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 like you're pressing the NOS button on your car, right? And you just keep pressing the NOS button because you have infinity because you don't want to run on gas or whatever. And the gas is your fat storage. So I have fat to use. Um, so I'm going to use it. 
I also feel better when I use it. I also look better when I use it. My health markers are also great. Um, and I don't risk looking like those that run on sucrose all the time. Yeah, that's also a good point. Interesting. Well, since we're talking about things right. that are not natural or not evolutionary accurate, let's talk peptides. Uh, you and I both <laughs> like peptides. You are, you are the it. peptide prince for all intents and purposes. One peptide that I've been experiencing <laughs> with, uh, you probably know, is BPC-157. And I must say, the results are pretty yeah. incredible across the board. Um, there's a lot of dissonance online as well for something that we'll discuss, which is anhedonia. Now, mm. me being someone who like struggles with anhedonia and is like my biggest kind of help. The reason that I'm in that health space for you, it was Burger King. For me, it was anhedonia. Um, <laughs> I don't really have that issue with BPC-157. Yeah. I will be honest. Like I, I don't, you know, I, I can take it. It will, it, it will kind of reduce. It, it, there's two types of anhedonia I'd say, but like even NAC, right? NAC and, and methylene blue and, um, BPC-157, they all reduce my sensitivity to things like uh, caffeine. But why, why is BPC-157 so effective? And I think more importantly, why is BPC one of the few orally bioavailable peptides other than the bioregulators that I take, put those in a different class? Mm -hmm. I guess we'll start with the okay, oral so bioavailability. I, yeah, let's start with that. So the oral bioavailability, like, can I... Explain why. So there's two orally bioavailable peptides, MK677 and BBC157, um, primarily. And then the BBC157, my assumption simply is, is because it's of gastric juice. We make it, we create it, we secrete it. Every time you get stressed out, you actually secrete BBC. And then BBC157 is a fragment. Um, so that's why most likely it's orally bioavailable is because it's, it's native to us um, and of that region. Mm. What was your What was your next uh, question? I wanted to jump let's, into let's, that. Let's talk about the the native nature of of peptides. So almost all, like I, all peptides really come from yeah. native peptide chains, right? And it's just a segment that we pull out and we synthesize. Um, yeah. BBC one five seven. That's interesting logic because it's coming from it's a gastric peptide. Your body seems to know what to do with it, and it's able to survive in that high, you know, p uh, that acidic. Uh, stomach acid state. Um, what about MK677? Why is that one also orally bioavailable? You know, I don't have an answer as to why MK677 is orally bioavailable or not. Like, I honestly don't know. I just know that the original studies were for the elderly to help them sleep better, to improve bone mineral density, and obviously improve growth hormone, which will help you do both of those. Why? I don't really know. To me, as far as like how I approach it, it was just like, it's kind of like, hey, these two are orally bioavailable. I did have an explanation on that, but most likely because it's, you know, it plays with ghrelin, right? So if we're going to, if I was going to just dive into it, it's because that, if you take M677 and it tempers with ghrelin, you get so hungry. You get so, so hungry. So like for you, you know, depending on what definition of natty or not is, one appropriate thing that you could do that would technically in my book maintain your natty status because you're not shutting down your HPTA is you could take MK677. It would increase your IGF levels. It increases. So basically we pulse throughout the day, right? Pulsing our favorite word, mm -hmm. but it would increase the height of that pulse. And since it works through ghrelin, your hunger goes up, your nitrogen retention goes up, not because of ghrelin, but because of MK. Um, so you would be technically more anabolic because your baseline IGF levels would go up 
Now, of course, what's interesting here is, is always the counter. As your growth hormone is secreted, as there is more growth hormone, your blood sugars are going to go up. So remember how we were saying that the system breaks? So as long as you can mediate and control your blood sugars as MK is activating, you can keep kind of juicing the growth hormone for what it is. But as soon as you cannot control your blood sugars and you lose the insulin sensitivity, the game is over. Your quote unquote cycle is over this and you'd have to reverse, maintain your insulin sensitivity, do it again. So that's actually something to our previous topic. You could and you should, and I would recommend it. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. We twisted my arm. Um, on the topic of natty versus non-natty <laughs> what about HCG, human cryonic gonadotropin? Is that technically natty? Oh man, that's a confusing one, right? That's a confusing one. If it, sh I'll just say this: if it shuts down your system, meaning if you take HCG and you go measure your LH and FSH, and your LH and FSH are under one, even though it'd be synthetic, so it'd be up. Let's say your FSH would be under one, then you're shut down. If you're shut down, then you're not natural. But things that operate on the natural pathways that maintain their integrity, even if they are synthetic, in my opinion, is still just maintaining your natty status. Because um, if we get into the conversation of natty, not natty, synthetics, I saw somebody I'm basically quoting a boots thread that triggered so many people the other day. Um, <laughs> you know, they're like, if it's synthetic, it's not natty. I'm like, okay, well, bro, you've been obsessed with creatine for the last five years as the end all be all. Like, do you know how that's made? So, that's kind of where I'm at. So I think HCG is great. I did HCG monotherapy for testosterone replacement. I don't necessarily think that I would constitute it as natty, but I also don't think it's as terrible because if you were to come off of it, you're not going to be maybe as shut down um, as you would, let's say, testosterone or cycle or something like that. I really don't. Um, I think a clomiphene is the better option because it just operates. When you come off it, nothing happens. But with, with the HCG, sometimes people need to reboot and reset but the best part is that the system still operates so one of the reasons that on trt you take hcg is to basically maintain the function of your of your of your nuts um so that way if you come off trt it's actually easier to reset right so that's why we use hcg well that's one of the reasons we use hcg interesting yeah i've been interested in hcg monotherapy but, uh, you know, I, I think it does come down to that thing of, is it going to require, you know, a, a reactivation, a rebooting of those natural systems? Now, that's when yeah. other compounds like, you know, SERMs and SARMs are, are very interesting. I, I do have my full natty card. I'll, I'll state that if I ever go non-natty, which I'm not opposed to. I think PEDs are incredibly beneficial, but they just require a certain level of knowledge and wherewithal that uh, most people don't have and I personally don't have. Um CIRMs, CIRMs, selective estrogenic receptor receptor modulators. Very interesting to me, just from the logic. You, you, you know, you, you modulate estrogen receptors yeah. in the brain, makes your brain think that you need more estrogen. Because we can only produce estrogen through testosterone aromatization, you create more testosterone. Is that natty? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is semantics at this point, but I, I'm actually yeah. curious about... It's, it's, you know, it's always so fun, dude. Like, my... Yeah, my thing with CIRMS is it is natty. It is the only it is the only tool that you have at your predisposition to use without shutting you down to increase your testosterone using natural pathways. So all the pathways you just described are still technically part of your natural. It's not an exogenous substance that's coming in and saying, "Hey, fuck you, I'm here." It's saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna use these pathways to give you testosterone that you currently have, right?" 
something similar to peptides. Peptides are just signaling things that are already there. They're not coming in from the outside expressing anything. They're, they're, they're coming in telling you to do it using your own systems. Now, it, it is semantics if you're judging what those systems are, right? And that's obviously up to the individual. But there are particular individuals who are not ready to take a uh, testosterone injection, and, but they're suffering from low testosterone. And they say they want to be fertile. And colophon is your best option. You maintain fertility. You stay, you quote unquote, stay natural and you don't have to inject anything. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, God, there's so many. It's just like Pandora's box, really. I think. <laughs> because, yeah. With that go. being said, to what started this conversation, BPC 157, you know, I know that you are, are very familiar with it. Um, I'm very familiar with it, thanks yeah. to you. And I've been using it and the, and the results are quite incredible. I think for a number of reasons, uh, gut protection, gut recovery, right? Uh, the vagus nerve, um, you know, also like the dopaminergic and serotonergic implications and also soft tissue recovery. You know, why is BPC-157 special? What do you think is that primary mechanism that causes it to be so healing? Is it just the result of angiogenesis? I don't think it's the result of angiogenesis. I also don't think that I will be able to answer why. I think people are still trying to figure out why. Um, because the pleiotropic nature of BPC is really, really profound. I think that the root of it is, you know, Dr. Seo is the guy who defined the word stress. And then he was also part of the team and the group who was part of BPC who called it anti-stress. And stress is everything, physical, emotional, you know, insulin secretion, corticosteroid secretion, um, everything, everything that's going on, they view as stress, right? So if you go into their model of stress and you look into it and you basically see that BPC touches all of it, it becomes really, really interesting, right? Basically all major organs, it stands for body protection compound for those that don't know. Um, and it, and it literally touches everything. And the whole point of it, you know, I cannot explain to you the mechanisms. We can just only from what we see, what, how it works and how it moves and how it functions is the word is homeostasis. It brings things back to where they should be. Right. And to your blood. So kind of how bioregulators, that's kind of their whole point too. BPC is just the overall homeostasis of your body. It won't let you go too far to the right, too far to the left. So, you know, if you're looking at anhedonia, there, there's actually interesting papers that are coming out and they, and they talk about it, but you know, my opinion lately is that it's taking you to your homeostasis and those who've been on SSRIs particularly, or are on SSRIs are commonly the ones that report this anhedonia because BPC basically turns off for many people. If they're taking Adderall Vyvanse, if they're taking SSRIs, if they're taking antidepressants, the BPC kind of turns it off. So if you have been living your life, right, if there's a center and you got away from your center and you are stuck here and you don't like how it feels like, and then you take an SSRI and then I give you BPC and it turns off the SSRI, you notice that you're away from your center. And this is the reason that you didn't feel good in the first place. So you're not going to feel good. And then imagine, and obviously I don't know if any of this is how it really works, but just from watching, BPC takes you and drags you by a different path back to the center. You're literally being dragged to somewhere you don't remember being. So that mm -hmm. process is uncomfortable, right? So my current 
when why I'm watching and there's and there's a few people that I'm talking to that are going through this is how long before you get to quote unquote this normal and can you function there? Do you like functioning there? Um, people quit taking Zins, knickknacks. I have knickknacks right here. People smoke less. People drink less. Yeah, right here. Knickknack. Shout out affiliate shout code. Out <laughs> Big thing that yeah, <laughs> love them. So, <laughs> so my opinion is just that you were in the place and you took something to not feel uncomfortable or to function, and now you're taking you got something that turned everything off and is dragging you to what it thinks is homeostasis that you haven't felt in a while, and that does not feel great. Yes, um, but again, people stop drinking, people stop taking pills, people stop smoking, people need less Adderall, people stop feeling all those things. People's cravings go away. Um, people are quote unquote healing. So I think the process of healing is an uncomfortable process for some and from certain circumstances, it just makes sense. Um, you know, we have a friend, he has a, he has a, his daughter on SSRIs and it's actually helping her titrate off of them. Right. It's awesome. Um, but with no, with no negative consequence, because that was our fear that she would feel anhedonic or she would revert to where she was, but that's not happening. But I think if you're very far out, it could feel like a shock. Um, yeah. So overall, I think it's cool. But yeah, that logic that you kind of brought to light when we first discussed this made a lot of sense to me. Right. And we see it all the time. People just are obsessed with being in this high cortisol state. It's gross oversimplification, but the constantly stimulated state always being fasted, always drinking black coffee. And when you go back to feeling normal again, yeah. it's going to feel weird. It's like stimulation, right? If you're constantly on TikTok, if you're constantly yeah. scrolling, hyper stimuli, it's going to feel like pulling nails when you go and try to read a book. So like, it does kind of feel uncomfortable dragging you back to that baseline. Now, you know, obviously the anhedonia induced by SSRIs is a completely different type of anhedonia. Like the, the BPC, NAC anhedonia, that's totally. nothing. And it's, it's uh, you know, for a lot of people, it's unfortunately, from what we've seen now, it's very long lasting, if not permanent. Um, you know, that's that's where my anhedonia issues came from. And like, that's really what I'm still trying to figure out. So, you know, I'm going to rip this BPC session again to kind of really stay keen on, on those indicators. And you, I think it's also important, you know, whenever you're diagnosing yourself, identifying what are the specific observations you have about those symptoms so you can know if, if they're being solved. For me, it's like, you know, the, the ability to feel cozy, I think is a big one, you know, the ability to feel music, all these things that like are really easy indicators for me to then go and assess, you know, what things work and what things don't. But anyway, that's a whole nother topic. I'm actually having Lucas Owen on from Boost Your Biology uh, early January. And we're mm -hmm. going to go dive into that because he is struggling with anhedonia and like PSSD like symptoms from ashwagandha, which is interesting, also has SSRI like functions so i don't know if you ever find any more information about that please do send it my way yeah yeah that, that's currently honestly my main intrigue and focus because there's a population of people that it's gonna happen um and it's 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 like 10 to 15 percent i would say but it's i think it's it's a it's a it's a positive reflection of something to handle and something to explore and something to 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 not avoid and not to ignore like i don't i don't think it's a bad thing I think it's just it's just showing something to to focus on. Um, but to the flip, what you were talking about is it's it's really interesting because people are always geeked out, and they're used to being geeked out, right? It's it's the whole thing why somebody can take you know thirty, forty, fifty milligrams of Adderall, 
They need three freaking, you know, energy drinks. They need dopamine. They need to be in dangerous situations all the time just to feel something. And if I give you this, you know, quote unquote, little Zen pill, and it just turns off the sensations, like you don't feel comfortable, like you are not comfortable not doing anything. And, you know, again, this could be philosophical, spiritual, whatever. I think that you should be very comfortable doing nothing. You should be very comfortable in silence. And if you are not comfortable doing nothing, you're not comfortable in silence. Like that's a different conversation because if you're just dopamine out of your mind, it's, it's the, you know, the dichotomy duality of being numbed out of your mind. It just feels better. <laughs> it's just more fun. Um, but also you should be able to get to neutrality and then turn on the buttons. And from that experience, I think it's just easier. You're more sensitive to it. It takes a lot less to get stimulated in my, in my personal experience. I, I want to be able to drink a cup of coffee and be completely out of my mind, stimulated without needing to, you know, drink a gallon of it just to say, Hey, <laughs> my day's starting. Yeah. Um, just to feel something, you know, so it's tough. And I think people would something. do better off. People would do better off at getting back to that state of baseline if they accepted the fact that it's going to be uncomfortable. If they accepted the fact that this uncomfortability is the action of returning to baseline in and of itself. And whenever I do it, it's like, hey, buddy, listen, yeah. like you brought this onto yourself. You're the one that had three cups of coffee yesterday. You're the one that spent an hour scrolling on Twitter getting that constant simulation. So like, this is what you have to do to make up for it. It's no different than when you eat a bunch of shit food, right? And you're like, hey, this is on me. You know, so I, I think a lot of it's accountability. Yeah. I think a lot of it's understanding that being uncomfortable and a little bit of suffering is an indicator of adaptation. And if you power through it, that's where all the results are going to be. It's on the other side of suffering. It's on the other side of reacclimation. And that goes like into the philosoph philosophical yeah. side of things. But, you know, I think that is the missing piece in a lot of this health stuff is at the end of the day, it's philosophy and how you approach one aspect of your life is really how you approach every aspect of your life. And I believe that we're very aligned on that. Yeah. Yeah. A million percent. Like that's the, that's the whole part, right? You said it right there. Majority of people do not feel comfortable in suffering. They don't even want to accept the word suffering that why should I suffer? I can just feel amazing all the time. I can be hedonistic all the time. I can be dopamine all the time. That's why I said like, literally just go sit on your couch and do nothing for the weekend. That might be the healthiest thing that you could possibly do is just drink water, electrolytes, whatever, get sunshine and do nothing. See what happens to you. Um, it, it's a very telling thing about a person. Um, so yeah, once you, but once you get through it and you get to it and you're just like super tuned in and awesome and like, it just doesn't take much. And then you feel everything you like, I think it's a superpower to feel everything. Don't attach to things, I, but you know, just to be able to process it all and just ride that wave and then, you know, go through these portals of energy and, you know, have these conversations, have these relationships because if you're dopamine out of your mind or you're numbed out of your mind, you don't get to do those things. Yeah. So I think it's a worthwhile task for anybody to do. I, I agree a hundred percent. So yeah, it's, it really does come down to that threshold, understanding that there's a threshold that you will hit where everything starts feeling great again. Your body's like, okay, cool. This is how it is. I'm going to capitulate. It happens with destimulation. It happens with reading. I hate reading the first two pages of any book. I hate it. It's the most boring thing ever. By that third page, I'm locked in. My mind completely changes. Cardio, right? You get that runner's high because your body capitulates yeah. and your brain capitulates. It's like, this is the way it is. I might as well suck it up and enjoy it. 
So I think people need to realize that threshold. They need to That's push it. through that threshold. Everything great in your life comes after breaking through that initial threshold, that resistance. It's all about resistance. And I think all great things are on the other end of resistance and suffering is only bad if there's no purpose in it. If it's just purposeless suffering, mm. that's just masochism. That in and of itself is a vice. But yeah, suffering for something greater is the most fulfilling thing that anyone can do. And it's something that I'm really focusing on, right? I'm embracing the suck. I'm setting an alarm. I'm forcing myself to do nothing because I know on the other side of that suffering, there is uh, salvation, as, as they call it, uh, without being too cliche. <laughs> True that. Uh, couldn't say anything better about that. I, I think that's the process. That's the protocol, right? That's it. And it's a, it's a great, beautiful thing. So like once that comes into people's consciousness, then they have this like, you have a choice. Like whenever you're ready, just try it out. That's all it is. Absolutely. A choice. Yeah, it really is. Well, Dennis, with that being said, I'm going to go get a massive bulking leg day in. So I'm going to go feed up on carbs. Um, carbs that are very well digestible, right? I think that's the most important thing when it comes to bulking. I want my digestion to be impeccable. I do not want to be bloated at all. I want to be able yep. to digest all of that and feel like I'm on an empty stomach for my workout and on an empty stomach for my next yeah. uh, my next meal as well. So this was an incredible uh, episode. I think this is one of the longer episodes that we did. Uh, we will definitely run this back soon. Like I said, I, I want to start this bio bro series. So you, Abood, will get Nupro in here as well. And I think we have the opportunity to have a lot of incredible discussions. Uh, Dennis, you're on Twitter, so I will link your Twitter. Anything else that you're excited about that you're working on? Any new areas of research that you find particularly interesting and you recommend some other uh, people to look into? And by other people, I mean me. <laughs> um, one, thank you so much for having me. Two, very much look forward to the, the BioBro Club. And three, as far as research is just honestly paying attention to you and how you move is, I think to help people's intuition and to find their own, right? So I think that others should be looking into how to tune in to themselves and not how to tune into other people's intuition. As far as interests, oh man, I'm still I'm still deep in GHK Copper. I'm still deep into BPC. I think those guys are gonna be forever with me. Um, and that's 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 really it. I'll, I'll keep you on the up and up. I'm looking to do something for, for, for all of our hair for our skin and things like that it's but i'll keep you i'll keep you in the loop and i'll keep you posted on that um thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it i always enjoy our conversations likewise i i feel very stimulated right now um and it makes me super excited <laughs> to dig deeper in this you know it, it really does um it makes me excited to kind of dedicate the time and go through the suffering of trying to figure out things at a deeper level on the topic of ghkcu i started using this new serum uh from protocol and look at this, look at this, look at this glossiness, dude. I, I've never had this before. I've always had awful skin. It really is, it is, it is a miracle compound from a topical standpoint. So, uh, yeah. Looking forward to it. I thought it was just my camera, man. I was like, man, look at this guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dennis, thanks again, man. We'll talk soon.